Nature Revisited. Nature Revisited is honored to have Bird and Company, a restaurant located in the heart of Portland, Maine, as a sponsor for this episode. Jeffrey Ryan, this land was saved for you and me. Co. is a taco restaurant and event catering business that has been serving Portland, Maine incredible tacos since 2018. At Burden Co., being part of the community is a large part of who we are. And whether it is a sit-down dinner, a party gathering, a wedding party, or a visit from our food truck, Burden Co. offers all of this and more. As part of our community, Burden Co. is proud to sponsor this edition of Nature Revisited, the podcast, Jeffrey Ryan is a longtime resident of Portland and has been known to enjoy a taco or two at the Burden Co. You can find us at 539 Deering Avenue in Portland, Maine, or visit us on our website at theburdenco.com. Burden Co. hopes that you make Nature Revisited a part of your community no matter where you live, and we hope that you enjoy this edition of Nature Revisited with Jeffrey Ryan. Nature Revisited is thrilled to have Jeffrey Ryan back on the podcast. On this edition, we will be talking with Jeffrey about his new book, This Land Was Saved for You and Me. Jeffrey Ryan is an author, photographer, and historian who has written several books about his outdoor adventures and the Appalachian Trail. Jeffrey is a longtime resident of Portland, Maine, and when he isn't writing or doing research, he is hiking and enjoying the outdoors. This land was saved for you and me is the story of America's public lands and the people who saved the American forest, the founding of forestry in America, and the creation of the U.S. Forest Service. There was a time in our not too distant past when our forests were in great danger of being totally decimated. A time when the use of our natural resources was very much out of control, especially when it came to our timber. This land was saved for you and me is the history of those who had the vision and the perseverance to save our forests. This Land Was Saved for You and Me is your new book. It's a story about America's conservation told in a way that I had never really seen it told before. I think for most people, the story of conservation has been told through the development of the national parks, or it's been told through the biographies of various famous people and that were involved in the movement. But what I 
found was in researching all of these various people that were involved from different directions and for different reasons, there was this amazing overlap of interests and competencies and handoffs between generations. And it was almost like a conservation family tree. I could see where people had crossed paths, handed down knowledge, and I had never really encountered the story told that way. And it was really fascinating to me how all of this came into being. So when did you first realize that you were gonna write this story? And how long did it take you? I first realized I was going to write it probably in 2017 when I was researching my book about the history of the Appalachian Trail. And one of the most important, in fact, the most important, arguably, person in developing that trail is the guy who came up with the idea for it, Benton Mackay. And he went on to become one of the founders of the Wilderness Society. And so I started reading about the people who were involved in the development of the Wilderness Society, and all of these things sort of started melding together in this amazing story, at least I thought it was amazing, of how numerous people were having insights that we were having a detrimental effect on the land and that conservation measures should be considered and adopted. And they were coming at it from different angles. But it turned into a groundswell that ultimately turned into the national parks and public spaces and national forests and wilderness areas that we all have today. So many of us are familiar with Olmsted, Muir, and Leopold. When did you first discover Gifford Pinchot? Gifford Pinchot, for me, I think came up early on, probably in college years, but it probably was one of those things that sort of left a, a hint back there somewhere because when I came upon his name again, I knew I wanted to learn more about him. Really, it, he started coming into focus when I started looking into the development of the whole wilderness ethic and the conservation ethic in, uh, in America and quickly learned that he was a really key person to get to know about. So when did you first realize that there was an amazing forgotten story about him that featured him? When I first found out about what he was doing, basically it goes back to his father reading a book by a guy named George Perkins Marsh, who wrote a book called Man and Nature in 1864, when he was describing man's effect on land and talking about the detrimental effects of clear-cutting forests in particular, but also creating deserts and wastelands of other kinds. And it was Pinchot's father who was so taken by this book, which is another interesting story because it was second only to Darwin's Origin of the Species. In readership, it really had an amazing following. Pinchot's father read this book and had the realization that his son should become a forester. And what's incredible to me about that story is that there were no foresters when he decided his son should be a forester in America. 
There were no schools of forestry. There were no programs. There was hardly even acknowledgement of the fact that forests should be managed at all. And so his son went to Yale. He took as many biology and botany classes as he could, but there, there was no forestry school. And so upon graduation, his father, who was a millionaire, was able to send his son to forestry school in France, where he studied for just over a year, and then came back to the United States announcing that he was going to be the first forester. You talked about how his father said you were going to be the first forester. Describe for us what was going on in the U.S. at that time that would want him to even make that statement. Describe what was happening pretty much throughout the country, but when it came to our forests. It's really staggering when you think about the level at which clear-cutting was going on. Obviously, part of the reason for that was in the time period the logging was going on, there was a feeling that America had inexhaustible supplies of everything. Lumber, birds, fish, you name it. What's really interesting to me is that the logging was going on, started in New England, you know, when Maine got logged, it went to New Hampshire and New Hampshire got logged. It went to Vermont and Vermont got logged. And when I say got logged, we're talking, in the case of Vermont, 90% of the state of Vermont was clear cut at one time. These were not managed forests. They were open game, basically. So on a national scale, you have this inexhaustible hunger for lumber, which was building America. But as this sort of national movement toward lumbering and moving west, and it moved out of New England and went into the northwest, and it took out you know, large parts of Wisconsin and large parts of Minnesota, and then, you know, as most of us know, it went down to Georgia, and then it started moving further west. And on a personal level, what Gifford Pinchot's father had seen, his father, the original Pinchot to arrive in America from France, showed up in Milford, Pennsylvania as a forester and clear-cut his way into riches. And then his son, Gifford Pinchot's father, became very aware of the fact that they had made their money off of something that had basically destroyed the area and decided upon reading this book and becoming enlightened about the fact that conservation should probably be practiced, not only stopped the clear cutting and went in a different direction with, with his career, but informed his son's career that we need to stop these practices. So it's really pretty profound. He had this insight that we needed to stop. When he was having that insight, a number of other individuals had also been influenced by this book. But even if they hadn't read the book, there were other people who were being influenced by what was going on around them. And it was happening with great speed. And in many cases, it was cut and run. Um, they would harvest the trees. They would move on to where there were more trees. And they would leave 
the forest completely cut over. When we look at some of these old photographs of what it really looked like, it looked like a war zone. It did. Cutting down all the trees as far as the eye could see wasn't enough of a shock. The other pieces that were happening were the slash, the unused parts of the trees, and then fires would come, so that would all burn out, and then there would be flash floods, and the streams would no longer be fishable because the dirt, the soil washed down into the streams. So there was this very strong feeling among locals that were still living there after the foresters came through that they'd quote-unquote been had they'd been taken advantage of. So in the wake of the, of the, of the clear-cutting was this growing belief that there had to be a better way. A lot of the book takes place after the Civil War. Do you think the war kind of overshadowed the national awareness of what was happening to our wilderness? And does it still overshadow the history of that time? Yeah, I think that the Civil War was so overwhelming of a daily story that everything got subsumed by it, really. Almost almost everything got backburnered by that war. At the same time, it's really interesting to think that at the time the war was going on, Frederick Law Olmsted, who had been obviously the co-designer of Central Park, had gone to California to run a gold mine, he ended up going to Yosemite as a result. And because of that, he actually started the National Park Movement during the Civil War. It was actually Abraham Lincoln who signed Yosemite over to the state of California in 1864. So he was still alive when Yosemite took shape and Olmsted designed the plan for saving the park. What, what he was very aware of was that someday in the distant future after the war was over, he predicted three million people a year would come to Yosemite and that they would need to design the park to be able to withstand that kind of visitorship. Last year, there were three and a half million visitors to Yosemite. So talk about how Mr. Pinchot I mean, is he considered the father of modern forestry? And talk about how that came about. He is. He's, he is for the very reason that he was the first head of the, of the Forest Service. Arguably, there were some other people that were, that were pushing the forestry button before he got there. Pinchot is largely considered to be the father of forestry because he was the one who helped put forestry on the national stage to a large degree, and he was the first run, one to run the Forest Service. But in doing so, he had to run an agency for several years that had no power. So in other words, they, they held the keys to the forests, but they had no sovereignty over how they were managed, which meant that the status quo continued to be that they were largely clear-cut with no ramifications. And he had the patience and the fortitude to wage a successful battle to take control of the management and enforcement 
of the forestry service. It's quite remarkable that he was able to do that and how he did that. When he took control of the agency in 1905, he knew that he was facing a possibility that the agency he was just made the head of was about to be disbanded. And there was a considerable charge that they would make the Forest Service prove its financial worth. He was on a short leash and knew it. And so after realizing this dream of becoming the head of the Forest Service, he realized he couldn't manage the federally owned forest, but what he could do is become an expert on forestry for the private landowners. So he developed a program very quickly to uh, provide assistance to private landowners of forests to show them that managing forests was economically viable. And the call for his services and the men that he hired was so great that it outstripped the demand. He, he, he had to keep adding more and more people. So he proved overnight, practically, that there was a reason to manage the forest and that stemmed the tide against shutting him down. It was brilliant. Briefly share with us some of the other characters that we meet in the book and their contributions and why they're important. Well, I mentioned Benton Mackay earlier on, uh, the founder of the Appalachian Trail, and Mackay left the Appalachian Trail movement. In the wake of that, he became involved in, in the Wilderness Society as one of the founders. But in going all the way back to his pre-Appalachian Trail days, he was in the U.S. Forest Service. He was actually attending Harvard when a young Gifford Pinchot came in his first days of running the Forest Service and said, we're looking for young men to become foresters. And so one of the interesting threads that I use to tell the story is Benton Mackay's ascension into the Forest Service and what his experience was, was like, because we had a profession that was growing at the same time. He was going to school for forestry and everything kind of dovetailed together. He saw firsthand the clear-cutting that had gone on in Wisconsin and became distraught and actually ended up leaving the Forest Service because he was so uh, upset at how the land had been basically abused in that part of the country. So there, there was Benton Mackay, Franklin Benjamin Huff, and he's and really fascinating and much overlooked character. His involvement is unreal because he grew up in upstate New York and went to medical school in Ohio and came back and practiced medicine for two years when he read the book Man and Nature and decided, I'm gonna quit practicing medicine and become an advocate for forestry. And so he started going around the country and taking an inventory of different species of trees in the 1800s when practically nobody was looking at this. Pinchot wasn't even out of Yale yet. And he was traveling around the country taking stock of what we had for possible future preserves and what grew where and unbelievable accomplishment for that era. Where is the birthplace of American 
forestry. And when and where was the first forestry schools? The first forestry school, this is another interesting part of the story, is that there was no forestry school established in America because there was no call for it. There were no forests to be managed. What ended up happening was down in the Biltmore estate in North Carolina, outside of Asheville, um, Olmsted was called on to design the grounds by Vanderbilt, the owner. And in designing the grounds, Olmsted looked at these vast holdings, which had been clear cut, and said, oh my God, these need to be reforested. And so it was Olmsted who said, I really advocate for building beautiful gardens in proximity to this giant house you're building, and then leaving the rest to become reforested again. And Vanderbilt readily agreed because he could see what had, what had been done. Olmsted realized he couldn't do the job himself, and he was a friend of Pinchot's father, and so he presumably knew that Pinchot had just come out of forestry school in France and called on young Gifford Pinchot to be the forester for the Biltmore estate, which was the first proof of concept of managed forestry. Pinchot did that for a while, a couple years, and then got called into doing some other projects. So he hired a guy named Shank, and he became the head of the forestry project on the Biltmore estate. And as his methods of forestry started gaining more and more attention, all of a sudden young men were showing up on the estate asking for work. They wanted to become his apprentices. And so after this happened for a few seasons, he realized, I think there's an opportunity here to establish a forestry school. So he went to Vanderbilt and said, what do you think? Let's start a forestry school. So they started teaching forestry on the Biltmore estate and proving that um, this was a viable thing to be doing. So this is in the 1890s. And the viability of a forestry school caught the attention of people in the Adirondacks who wanted to help the Cornell School get started. So it was right after the Biltmore School got started, literally months, the Cornell School of Forestry started. And then Yale followed soon after that, funded by the Pinchot family. First of all, the Cornell School failed quickly for a variety of reasons. And secondly, Pinchot, Gifford Pinchot, saw to it that the success of the Biltmore School was undermined so that he and his family could take control of the way forestry was taught, he in particular. Because as the now head of the of US Forest Service, he wanted people schooled in his way of forestry. So the Yale Forestry School for the first 20 years was taught on the Pinchot Estate in Milford, Pennsylvania. And so Pinchot hired an old college friend of his, Harry Graves, to be the first head of the forestry school at Yale. And they were pumping out students that were schooled in the Pinchot, quote unquote, way of forestry. You mentioned that people came from Europe. So was forestry already a 
the, the concept already established in Europe? And, in Germany and France. And they were teaching it there? Yes, for many years. In, in fact, um, well, they called it silviculture then, um, more than forestry, but it was generally the same. They had a working forest school actually in France and in Germany. Several decades, if not a hundred years worth of forestry that had been going on over there. So how did the Adirondacks play such an important role in the story of the forest conservation? Wow, the Adirondacks is just, it's a story that blew me away because I, I like uh, probably many others who have any sort of what they thought was understanding of how the Adirondacks came to be is that it was established as a preserve and it was all done out of the generosity of, of the local people and the foresight of the, of the New York state government and et cetera, et cetera, and it wasn't really that way. What happened was the forest there had been so devastated that some of the problems that we had talked about before were really rampant there. There was flooding, there was drought. And what also happened was after the foresters cut and run, they stopped paying taxes. So the state of New York got into a situation where they had 75,000 acres of land that did not have taxes being paid and had no way of collecting them. They were, they were gone. I mean, they were out of state. They were cutting elsewhere. They had little recourse. And the other thing that was happening was the environmental damage was so severe that the Erie Canal would have hellacious flooding on one hand, and on the other would be one-third lower than its normal capacity in droughts. The biggest problem that existed there was not just locally, but it was down in New York City where the merchants began to realize that if the Erie Canal was not a viable mode of transporting goods, then the railroad was going to be able to charge whatever they wanted. So all of a sudden, the merchants started getting on board with this. We need to reforest the Adirondacks to help stabilize the water. Interesting because this was not only going on in the Adirondacks, it was also happening in New Hampshire where they had had massive floods, including one that put 3,000 people out of work overnight in a mill because the, there was nothing to stop the water. Also, it happened in Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh got flooded because the, the same thing. Everything had been clear-cut the, around them. So in the case of the Adirondacks, there was this strange coalition of people with common interests. The, Merchants in New York City, the hunters and, and anglers in general, the idea of saving the forest became a big crusade. And to, much to Pinchot's chagrin, because he believed that the Adirondacks should be a proving ground for sustainable forestry practices. And he tried and tried to sell it, as did others. Every, every forester was a bad forester in, in the minds of the people. They didn't want to hear anything about forestry, so it ended up being, quote unquote, forever wild. So large tracts of that have been, to this day, left alone. And that was really the start of the sort of preservation versus conservation discussion, let's say. At, at, at times it was an argument. 
but should we save land and leave it whole, leave it alone, or should we allow land to be harvested and for the benefit of everyone as well? So how do those things play against each other is also a common theme that has no clear answer and comes up several times in my book. What's important, I think, to understand in the Pinchot world of things is that we were looking at a time when there was practically no wilderness. I had mentioned Yosemite being established, but it was as a state park originally. It was basically wide open. Even, even the land that was owned by the federal government was still open to either illicit or just cut and run forestry. So Pinchot saw a legitimate case, which I still think exists today, personally, that the forest should be managed for the benefit of everybody, and that the forests are a resource to the public lands that exist for those activities to take place on. Whatever comes out of those activities should be owned by all of us for the benefit of all of us. So if the trees are harvested, the taxpayers should yield a benefit from that. That was his basic premise, that we, we can manage the forest in a way that allows the forest to be continually productive and allows us all to benefit from that. So that was kind of like square one. Square two was kind of the national park movement and what they were doing to make sure that scenic areas had some protection and were available for everyone to enjoy, which is sort of the Olmsted part of the, of the story, which is he was very much concerned with, and in fact, one of the first to be concerned with the fact that we should all have these places that we can go, where we can mingle, where we can recreate, and where we can just relax from the day to day, whether it's in Central Park or whether it's in the Grand Canyon. And then the third leg of the stool is really the Wilderness and the Wilderness Act. That was Benton Mackay, Aldo Leopold, Bob Marshall, and the other five founders of the Wilderness Society who believed that, yes, we have national parks and we have national forests, but national forests are still susceptible. We need to have places that are sacred, that are just left alone, that don't have concession stands, that don't have roads, that, that just are left for our enjoyment and or for species survival of the plants and animals that live there or migrate there and or the planet, which we are increasingly knowing is important. So those are really the three legs of the stool, and that's why I followed the story the way I did, is that Olmsted had the realization that we need the places. Pinchot had the realization that we needed some of these places that were managed for everyone's benefit. And then the third piece was the Wilderness Consortium who felt that we needed places that were just left alone, as, as Aldo Leopold would say. So how did the Wilderness Act of 1964 come about, and why is it so important? It's hugely important. The Wilderness Society started with eight 
people. Within a couple of years of their founding in 1934, Bob Marshall died at very young age. And that was a huge loss because he was a financial benefactor as well as a, a genius in terms of articulating why nature and wilderness are important to us. And then um, Robert Sterling Yard, who was their publicist, died in 1945, although Leopold died in 48. So you're, you're getting the idea here that a lot of the original founders were either gone or were losing steam. They were fighting individual battles for wilderness areas and quite frankly, were getting exhausted, all of them, regardless of age. And it was Benton Mackay who came up with the idea of formulating a wilderness policy that was natural in scope. And so they had recently hired this young guy named Howard Zahnheiser to sort of take the reins of their publicity. And it was Zahnheiser who also had a way with words and a way of almost ministering people in terms of articulating why wilderness areas were so important. And it took him seven years of literally nonstop meetings with senators and members of the House and anyone who would listen to him to help them understand the importance of nature and the importance of wilderness in the context of our national lands. Basically, single-handedly brought the Wilderness Act into fruition. And the irony is that he actually gave so much of himself to get this act passed that he died in his sleep a couple months before it got signed. So he died knowing that the bill was going to be passed, but unfortunately he didn't make it to the finish line. He was 58. One of the things that I really did take from your book was how this consorted effort to save our forests was able to reach across political aisles and come to a consensus about what was needed to be done, that people actually did listen to their opponents. And there were some strong differences, and that that was something that doesn't seem to be able to happen today. It doesn't, but I have hope. Writing this book has given me a great measure of hope. It is really remarkable when you consider how much power and how many points of view were galvanized then, as they are now, in the case of the Wilderness Act, you had the National Park Service and the National Forest Service. Why would they want to have a wilderness? Particularly the, the National Forest Service, why would they want to carve out part of their land to create a wilderness and have it managed under different guidelines than the rest of their property? So you had very entrenched interests within the government not to mention the, the timber, the grazing, the mining, you know, all, all of, of these interests were initially against this idea. And it was the same with the Forest Service. And what Pinchot had done with the Forest Service was the same story in a way of what Zahnheiser had to do with the Wilderness Act, which is to bring people who initially aren't willing to listen and to have them understand that you're not the enemy, that this is in the interest of all of us. 
You know, this is not us versus you. And in fact, what I thought was really interesting, some of the speeches that Zahnheiser made, and, and, and Pinchot for that matter, he would go behind what we would now call enemy lines. He would go to their conferences and do a speech and say, please hear what I'm saying. You know, we got to work together here. It took a while to build that trust. I wish there was more time given to building that trust in this day and age. That's the one thing I see is everything's kind of, you're either with us or against us. And Zahnheiser was was marvelous because he came from he, he was the son of a minister, so he, as his son told me, had the patience, and he saw the way of telling the story. He was hard to say no to. He carried different versions of the, of the literature, of talking points in his coat pockets, which he had built like a file drawer, so he could see someone in the hall and say, you know, maybe this one will resonate with that person. He was charming, he was articulate, and he was smart. I, I think it speaks volumes that when it when the bill went to the House, there was one dissenting vote. It was something like 346 to one. I mean, it's just phenomenal that he was able to do that. It makes me feel like we're coming to an inflection point again. I think we need to be able to have discussions about a lot of things. They, they kind of showed us the way. One of the things that I'm thinking about just l listening to you is that one of the reasons that these folks could all come to this agreement is because nature was involved. And what we're facing today may bring us together because, and maybe nature has a way of showing us or making us look at things just a little bit differently. It absolutely does. I mean, this is the common thread of everything that I've written, I think, is that nature has lessons for us on a variety of levels. And I think that we obviously need it to be healthy, mentally and physically. But I, I think we need it emotionally. I think that one of the things that Zahnheiser was able to articulate was we're not, we're not drawing lines on a map and saying, it's a museum where, where no one should ever go there. What we're saying is we need places that are free from roads. We need places that we can just go and be. And we need places psychologically, as both Americans and citizens of the earth, we need places, we need to know they exist. conversation with Jeffrey Ryan and that the next time you are walking in the forest please remember the folks who helped save them you can contact Jeffrey at jeffreyandauthor.com Nature Revisited would like to thank Burden Company from Portland, Maine again for sponsoring this episode thank you for your support if you would like to sponsor an episode or support Nature Revisited, please visit our website, nordenproductions.com 
slash support. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com slash support. The music for this episode is Jessica by the Allman Brothers. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. <laughs>